Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Today, I'm talking to Natasha Walton, who I met through the Tech Disability Project. I love talking to Natasha because she shares a story about PTSD and fibro diagnoses, but she also talks about the routines and habits that she's built up to manage them. And Natasha has a lot to say about disability nomenclature and what this identity has come to mean in her own life. I do pipe up occasionally with my own experiences, so if you want more context for that, check out episode one. We do get a bit of feedback on my mic in the middle of the interview, but I promise it goes away again. So thank you so much for your patience as I get familiar with the production side of podcasting. And of course, I've got a quick disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Um, okay, so why don't you tell me a little bit about, I'm fiddling with my headphones, sorry. Tell me a little bit about how kind of whatever started for you. So were you like a healthy kid? I would not say that I was a healthy kid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I As growing up, I did have some quote unquote mysterious symptoms, mm-hmm. um, mostly relating to headaches and stomach aches. I had a lot of anxiety and a lot of difficulty managing the stress of school and mm-hmm. pressure and family changes. And I remember I also had a curved spine and so I had back pain. So it, it was never clear whether any of these things were related or whether they were different, but I had this pattern for most of my life really until recently where I'd have spikes of enthusiasm or energy to dedicate to my body and I'd say, oh, hey mom, can we, I, I think there's something going on with my spine, can we go to this kind of doctor and we'd go and then the doctor would say something like, oh well, if you had come 18 months ago, you would have been the right age for a back brace, but because you're now in eighth grade, it's actually too late, so there's nothing I can do. And then I would fall into a deep sense of bitterness and resentment and struggle with the bad news, and then I'd just shut off and be like, well, then I guess there's nothing, and I'd lose all of that energy and momentum that I had had. previously. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That makes, I, I can see how that would happen. So it was kind of all kinds of stuff, but you were still in school, it sounds like, and for the most part participating, it sounds like if you were taking initiative or even asking to go to doctors, you recognized that something was going on, but you didn't didn't really have the full picture, would you say? Yes, and didn't get any diagnoses really as, as a young person. And I I think it must have been really hard as a parent, not necessarily, I don't think my mom necessarily was equipped to know how to navigate the medical system or advocate on my behalf, and I was too young to know how to do that either, and Mm -hmm. so we just kind of flailed, Um, but when I was 17 years old, I had a very acute experience where I had just finished a sports competition, I came home, I had a terrible stomach ache, I skipped dinner, which was unheard of for me and just laid down and as the hours went by it got worse and we ended up in the emergency room around midnight and long story short we were there all night Uh, they said they believed it was a ruptured ovarian cyst and sent me home and said I'm sorry you're in pain but you should feel better soon good luck Um, (laughs) check you later (laughs) Um, 
that was not the case. I didn't start feeling better. I met, I continued to miss school, and when I had a checkup maybe three weeks later, my stomach was still descended, and I was still having difficulty getting through the school day, and they were like, oh my goodness, we were not expecting this to be the results um, weeks later. Um, so they rushed me in for surgery the next day, and it anything that could have gone wrong kind of did. And what ended up happening was I had a medical case of PTSD where I woke up too early from the amnesia. Oh my God. It was much more complicated and intense of a procedure than anyone would have anticipated. And mm -hmm. I was left again without a diagnosis or any reason of what happened. They said, we found an infection. It's probably related to your daughter's promiscuity. This is what they told my parents while I was like still under Great. amnesia, which was you know, couldn't, couldn't have been further from the truth and was really one of those things that you hear about doctors yeah. you know, to kind of cover their own tracks. They don't know what's going on, so they blame right. it on your own behavior. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it, it was very difficult to recover from that, but I was young and I bounced back. Um, but the PTSD was not diagnosed for another 10 years. And so yeah. the symptoms around tension and insomnia and a panic for reasons that I couldn't identify really plagued me year after year and got worse and worse until when I was around 28 that ended up being kind of the next moment for me where I was like okay I think I'm gonna have some I, I need to muster up some energy to figure out what's going on with my health. Mm -hmm. So were things pretty much constant throughout your 20s since that's about a decade it sounds like so that was between 17 and 28 so you were kind of going through life and coping however you were coping but things were I don't rolling along basically as much as did you look around and go this isn't quite the same as everybody else but like I'm doing it or how did that feel coping is definitely the right word um I you know I I went to college, I graduated, I looked for a job, I was trying to just do what everyone else was doing, but I did always feel, you know, before and after that surgery that something was a little bit different with me, mm -hmm. but I really, if I had lost faith in doctors before I was 17, after that, I, I other than like an annual gynecological checkup, yeah. I didn't go. No. Maybe if I had strep throat or something, but yeah. I did not have a primary care provider for that decade. Yeah. I did not seek out any specialists. I didn't do any investigation. I was in full on denial. Okay. Um, that was how I coped. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, you know, I was behaving like everyone else, just smoking and drinking and doing the things that make things a little bit easier mm -hmm. to cope with. Um, mm -hmm. And just really trying to focus on be normal, be normal. Like, come on, body, you've got to do what I need you to do. Um, yeah. But I ultimately felt very dissociated. But by my body, I felt let down by my body. I hated my body. It, mm -hmm. All it did was cause me trouble. And I just lived up here in my mind and thought that I was going to be able to have these coping mechanisms last forever. But they didn't. They expired in a <laughs> grand way when I was about 28 years old. And I couldn't, I couldn't cope just by denying anymore. Yeah, just yeah. by ignoring it and getting up and telling yourself that this is normal or, I mean, whatever it is. I'm sure everybody has a different version of self-talk, but that's like, no, you're just being lazy. 
You're like, everybody else is doing it. It's fine. Oh, yeah, I really hear that. And the God, it's hard, especially I think in college and in your 20s, there are so many things that everybody's doing that are kind of generally unhealthy, but also numbing. Like my experience <laughs> is that if I drink, I mean at all, like if I have a cocktail, so many of my body symptoms really mellow out a little bit, but I can't actually be like one cocktail drunk all the time for a variety of reasons. So it's not solving anything, but you can really cruise for a long time in that kind of coping mechanism plus denial place. So I hear that. Okay. So that's how you got to 28 when you, it sounds like, are kind of forced to do some research and or take action, whatever that looks like. So how did that go? Yes. Um, so that was the beginning of kind of a next chapter of recovery, really. Um, mm-hmm. I had a hypomanic episode related to some difficulty I ha- was having in my career path and my sense of self, which I'm sure to a certain degree is very common for people in their late 20s of kind of just self-actualizing and growing into their adult self. But for me, I had these compounding health effects and psychological symptoms that made it much more difficult, I think, of an experience um, for me to wrap myself around, to wrap my head around kind of who am I and Mm -hmm. and what am I doing here. So I had tried to found a company. I put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself financially um, to make very quick success. And again, knowing I had post-traumatic stress syndrome, I, using that lever of stress was like the only way I knew how to motivate myself and without really understanding the terrible effects that it was having on my mind and body. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up having a hypomanic episode. Um, It lasted the, I would say there was really a year, a full year where I mentally, I struggled every single day um, to sleep, to wake up, to um, feel all right in the world, to understand, I I didn't know who I was, and even though there were positive things going on in my life, like um, that's around the time that I met my husband, um, there was still, I was was struggling on the mental health front, but I, I got into therapy, and I started putting one foot in front of the other and learning some new ways of managing stress instead of coping through difficulties Mm -hmm. Um, and that's after making a little bit of progress on some stress management practices with my therapist that's when I started to really notice the pain because I've always been in pain every day of my life and so especially as a young person when you don't know you have no other baseline it's very difficult to ascertain exactly how much pain you're in and how much pain is quote-unquote normal and even how much pain is tolerable when there's so much pressure to fit in and do do all the things and when I really started slowing down and starting to care for my mind that's when I started to not be denying the pain that my body was in as well Mm-hmm. Um, so I started meditating I started with just five minutes and that's when I the pain was just it was I was in so much pain and it for the, I started just five minutes a day being like okay I'm gonna feel the pain and then and then I stop and then I go about my day yeah. um, and so I, I was for me I I view I know there's a lot of conversation around folks 
uh, around physical symptoms being mislabeled as psychological symptoms. And so I don't want to confuse my story with that type of confusion. And I have both physical symptoms and psychological symptoms, and they interplay. And for me, the way I manage my own health is I, I treat them the same. I treat them both with the same type of attention now of, oh, something's hurting, whether it's physical or in my, or in my mind or identity. Okay, now I'm, now I'm going to take that cue and address it. Um, and, but, but when I look back on the story of how it all came about, the, the two just danced together in a very, very fluid way mm-hmm. with, with my experience. Um, and so I went to a psychiatrist. I got an evaluation. That I thought was extremely difficult. Like I cried every time I went to that office. I didn't tell many of my friends. I felt tremendous shame. Um, even though I knew, I knew that it was nothing to be ashamed of, I, I, I still felt a lot of shame. Um, ultimately, he diagnosed me with something called cyclothymia. It's not very common. It's on the bipolar spectrum because I had this hypomanic episode, but I've never had a depressive episode of full okay. of, of, of a major depressive episode. And so um, cyclothymia means you just run a little hotter, a little mm-hmm. higher, a little faster. Um, and so around then I started to say, maybe, maybe PTSD is the right diagnosis, but he asked if I had ever had a flashback. And one, I didn't really know what the trauma was or could have been. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it maybe it had been something different. We've all been through, especially women, you know, some, some tough experiences. Sure. And so I wasn't sure even what I would be looking for in a flashback. And two, I didn't know what a flashback was. Okay. I didn't, okay. he, he's like, it's a movie playing. And, and that registered a certain way to me. Yeah. But yeah. Um, when I was in his office, I, was, I didn't have the information to be able to say, yes, I have had a flashback. And that's why I didn't meet his criteria, and that's why I didn't get that diagnosis from him. Okay, okay. and it's, and it's so, subjective, so subjective. It sounds like. like, yeah, it's all dependent. I mean, not all dependent, but it is most. My experience was mostly dependent on what I could self-report, mm-hmm. and it's so your interpretation of the question. Yeah, yeah um, without having and knowing what all of these questions actually meant, it, mm-hmm. that makes self-reporting pretty difficult. And that's why I always include that detail in my story because I think there are a lot of people who may be experiencing PTSD symptoms who don't know how to identify them or articulate their experience and are getting the wrong diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And who are maybe, who using, are maybe using like the, like, wrong, the language wrong language for the medical for the community. community, sounds like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that makes sense. And then, of course, it makes no sense because none of it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we interface with the system and our understanding of it has so much to do with our success in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So at this point, you are now seeing somebody and I guess if it's a psychiatrist, it's like they do have a medical background, but they also are in mental health. So it's a person who, whether or not it's a good experience with that person, they are theoretically equipped to help on both sides. And um, if you were starting, especially looking at mental health stuff and started to notice or that shone some light on your physical symptoms, did that change your course of action or how you started to think about your own experience of your body? That's a good question. Um, I, I think at this stage, I, I, I felt like even though I was starting to get in touch with some of my physical symptoms, one that unless I could get mentally 
in a place where I was more stable, I wasn't going to be able to treat those physical symptoms or maybe even feel them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of why I prioritized it. Um, and then the second piece is um, basically after seeing that psychiatrist, I he, he prescribed lithium for me that felt like I had some nervousness around it. And I said, okay, I hear you. I'm, I don't know if I want to get blood tests every month. I don't know if I, – I feel like I might have PTSD. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research some other treatments. And if those don't do the trick, I'm going to come back to you and, and take you up on this course of action. Mm-hmm. And so I did my internet research. And I actually heard a podcast. It was a Tim Ferriss episode interviewing a comedian of all people named Whitney Cummings. And oh, she yeah. I just know who she is, but I don't know the episode. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's very open about her mental health journey and chronic illness symptoms. And, and I heard, she was the first person I heard talking about PTSD in a way that I was like, oh, that's a, that's a diagnosis that I could potentially have. Mm -hmm. And she started talking about PTSD treatment, which I had certainly never had any exposure to. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I was like researching it. And so she talked about a treatment called EMDR. Um, I ended up finding online a treatment called somatic experiencing. And just right off the bat, I felt like my trauma symptoms were manifesting themselves not only in my mind, but also in my body. And somatic experiencing is a type of treatment that addresses the nervous system specifically, which connects the mind and the muscles essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it, when the nervous system, so the chronic PTSD is when the nervous system is in a near constant state of fight, flight or freeze mm-hmm. um, versus for a nervous system that hasn't experienced, it will go into one of those threat responses only when there's a threat. And then when the threat's over, it will come back down and leave the threat response. Mm-hmm. And what I was learning as I was researching somatic experiencing and Dr. Peter Levine who created it, that my system was getting stuck. It was basically always in a threat response. And mm-hmm. that was really putting a lot of strain on my adrenal glands and just all of the systems that respond for me to be basically constantly in a state of panic. And that's why I was having so much trouble sleeping. Um, And that's why my body was holding so much tension, which Mm -hmm. I came to realize as I started this kind of baby meditation practice that my body, when I really tuned in and could tolerate the pain enough to feel it, that my muscles were clenched. and so I started this therapy, and for me, it worked wonders. Wow. Um, I took it very seriously. I went twice a week for about a year and then once a week for about another year. Mm-hmm. And it's a body-based therapy um, where basically each session is different, and for each client it's going to look different. But in my experience, she was holding space for me to – connect my mind and body kind of for the first time in a really long time. And she wouldn't, it's all about titrating going very, very, very slowly and saying, okay, let's just feel that a little bit. Okay. Now let's feel something that feels good. Okay. And then keeping it in that window of tolerance and slowly training the nervous system to understand that that was then whatever happened that was so terrible. That was then. And this is now, and you're allowed to be off the hook. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and like close that loop, learn to close that loop in yeah. terms of, I also mean the like fight or flight response, the nervous system response. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. So it was a place that you go to, which makes sense. Um, what kind of a what kind of a practitioner do you find? Is there are there many practitioners of this? Is it specialized? So if you're in a city, it's easier to find. Like, what kind of person is it? It's growing. I'm sure that there are places in the country and world where it's going to be harder to find a practitioner. I was in the Bay Area at the time, which was a great place to be looking for a practitioner. Yeah. But it's basically a, a follow-on training. And a lot of the folks who are trained in it are first trained as therapists. Okay. Um, but there are also body workers or mm. massage folks who can do a version as well. So okay. depending on right. what type of therapy you're looking for. Mine was an MFT, mm-hmm. um, but we did not do talk therapy. Like she did, we did not, we also didn't talk about the trauma, which I think is really important to note that mm-hmm. this therapy is not about revisiting or reliving um, or reprogramming your mind around the trauma. It's about actually saying, let's actually stay really far away from that and move slower one inch at a mm-hmm. time and not overwhelm your system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that some people talk about it that that for some people talking through trauma, it, your body can't tell the difference between like thinking about it, so talking through something that happened and actually living it. And of course, that also it depends on who you are and what your experience was and how your system is processing something, but for a lot of people, it's like you're just tearing the wound open over and over again if you've identified if you've identified the source and you're trying to talk through it with a practitioner like you're not you're just hurting it's not helping but it depends okay so you were doing that for two years which would be yeah I'm sure a very intensive like getting into your body experience especially if you've been running away from your body for a really long time yeah and then and then what? <laughs> where where has that gone, I guess, from then to now? Or was there – have there been different physical things that happened or did that clear a lot up? I like to ask compound questions so that you can answer whichever one resonates. Certainly, yeah. Um, so, again, with my, my philosophy that I was taking of, okay, I want to address my mental health symptoms first and mm-hmm. then I want to address my physical symptoms, um, somatic experiencing helped helped enable me to continue the search for some additional diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Um, So my therapist actually, she really helped my talk therapist. She really helped me work through some of my issues around doctors and just trust with the medical system. She was raised by physicians. So that was just kind of an interesting quality that she had. And one of her parents was a rheumatologist, which I never heard of but mm-hmm. because she happened to know from this family connection she was like why don't you just do a search why don't you consider looking into rheumatology a lot of the symptoms you're describing kind of could potentially be in that field mm-hmm. and so I went and that was the first time I heard about fibromyalgia um, and I because of the chronic widespread pain that I feel around my body um, we thought that that could be a diagnosis. And so um, I, I do think that I, I have fibro as well. Um, I take a pill called Lyrica, um, a, a small one in the morning, small one at night. It's been really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Um, just immediately, I, I didn't have any negative s- symptoms or side effects rather, and it immediately just helped me f- with brain fog, feeling a little bit clearer and a little less achy. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
that helped. And then there's also a physician, I believe his name is Dr. Tietelbaum, who is one of the kind of experts who's in the media around fibromyalgia. And okay. he wrote a, he wrote a book. And I read the book, and I was like, okay, I can make these changes. And they were lifestyle changes. And I think that's one of the hard things about fibro is, though there is a medication like Lyrica, it does have, for me, and the symptoms that I associate with fibro, just the way that I live my life and the lifestyle that I keep has a big impact on whether those symptoms are flared or not. Mm -hmm. So I just started going to bed earlier. I had to start winding down before bed earlier and be really careful about screen time. I went gluten-free. I started drinking a lot. During this whole time, I I really mostly stopped drinking. And I, I wasn't – I think that was mostly just in the spirit of recovery and mm -hmm. to really understand what was going on with my body. I didn't want to be covering any of that up. So that, that worked for me. Um, I started taking some supplements, for in instance, and more hot baths with Epsom salt. And I just – that that book and kind of coupling these diagnoses that I collected at that point, I really just amped my self-care up. Mm -hmm. And it st started being a daily thing instead of a, a weekly or monthly thing for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Are there things are there things that you've tried that you've let go of? And are there things that you've tried that you're like, I didn't really think it would work, but it has made the biggest difference? kind of both ends of the spectrum like what has it been like to tinker with lifestyle because I think that stuff that stuff is hard because there are so many skeptics kind of obviously it's so hard to sell lifestyle changes I, sell might be the wrong word word but many people are look for medication because they only want medication and they want to believe that nothing else will make a difference so how has that how has that worked for you I, I think the, the most difficult thing for me to accept related to the question you answered is that I was only going to realize some relief when I did a combination of things. Mm -hmm. And the kind of analytical thinker in me thought wanted to instead like isolate things and do one thing at a time and see how much it changed versus embracing the more holistic approach. Um, mm -hmm. There's something that made me uncomfortable about making a change and not being able to know exactly how much that one intervention yeah. was impacting things. But I've, I've realized for myself that like, I, I can't, I can't know with that level of precision, but in general, when I'm living a certain way, I feel much better. And as soon as I start to let my routines generally go, I get into trouble extremely quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I have tried to use like do symptom tracking or even just food journaling, but food journaling plus symptom tra tracking plus whatever kind of other information you'd put in there. And every time I start to do it, it's just like it's too much information. There's no obvious connection between anything. Like it's such a an intensive process that never really yields fruit. So that's mm -hmm. hard. I think I agree with you. It's hard if your brain wants to find connections. And I think that's one of the reasons that like there aren't good studies about some of this stuff is because you can't isolate the variables. But yeah. Yeah. But in terms of what has made the, the, the number one thing for me, the thing I prioritize top in my life is sleep. Mm -hmm. I say sleep is first. <laughs> just, just that yeah. category. Then my health, including my mental health and then my marriage. Mm -hmm. And because when I don't sleep and I don't take care of my physical and mental health, I can't show up for my marriage, no. much less any other relationship or aspect yeah. in my life. Yeah. Um, but sleep is the thing. And so 
in in pursuing sound sleep, I that's when I started being able to isolate variables. Mm-hmm. Oh, what happens when I watch TV right until the moment before I fall asleep? Oh, I can't. I can't yeah. fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and so I think that by having sleep be like my flag post, that helps me notice how other things might be affecting my sleep rather than trying to decipher how these things are affecting every other symptom that's harder to track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely at that point right now where like sleep is the thing. It is the one lever that I can I can immediately see if it's if it's impacted like oh this is hurting it's because I didn't sleep well and you can tell yeah if you can't fall asleep you're like something's wrong or if you wake up too early because I, I run into that too like Monday morning I woke up at 2 30 in the morning and I didn't go back to sleep it's like that's not this is a bad day this day is over now yeah it's incredible how that shakes kind of shakes everything but I guess it's when your immune system is operating and that's that's what I've been told most recently is a big part of it so yeah, so and recovery sleep. for your muscles as well. So yeah. for chronic pain, like when we sleep, that's when our muscles repair. Yeah. And for all those years in my twenties that I had insomnia and was only getting light sleep for a couple hours a night, oh. my muscles were just building up this. I, I don't residue in a conceptual yeah. way, not yeah. a, a physical way, but like right. they were just becoming more and more sore because they were never getting that chance to really recover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And so now, where where are you? So that's a great priorities chart. I think I that really resonates with me. Um, what like I, how much of your energy? It sounds like at this point, it's probably still taking up a lot. This is something that I find for sure. Is you're like, okay, I just it's a full time job doing all of the things that I need to do. Um. So, what? Or how how do you want your life to be shaped around that? I I'll work on phrasing that question better as I do more of these, but but I think it's important. I think also your your project, the Tech Disability Project, is kind of about this too. Is about how does work and how do work and health kind of overlap, and how do we build a space for that? So how is that working for you right now, or how are you approaching it? So before I answer that question, there's kind of one more important chapter to mention. Mm -hmm. Oh, Um, yeah. So after fibromyalgia and a lot of those interventions, I I really was feeling better on a lot of fronts after taking PTSD treatment and fibromyalgia treatment. But um, something that was interesting that they said around fibro was like, I know you've had some injuries in the past, which I have. I got injured a lot as I was an athlete in high school. I had to stop running um, I, uh, when I was around 20 years old and I had to stop skiing then and I was kind of slowly losing activity and I was realizing like I tried yoga therapy and then I got an injury and like as I was trying things I kept getting injured but the fiber doctor was like oh no fibromyalgia doesn't actually have tear your you're not actually more prone to tearing your muscles or straining your muscles with fibro. It just feels like they hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- as soon as I thought that might be the case I, I, I started doing, I started living as though that were the case and I started getting even more injured. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. and so there ended up being this kind of extraneous symptom that for all of the things that were covered by my other diagnoses and treatments, I was getting frequent muscle injuries mm-hmm. that we still don't yet have a, a proper diagnosis. We've explored Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Right. Maybe I have hypermobile joints. Um, 
but there are lots of criteria that I don't meet for EDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and EDS and so, is incredibly complicated because there's so many different types and some of them have tests and some of them don't. So I can. Incredibly yeah. complicated. And, and I, I am part of EDS support groups and I found, I find that the tips and tricks that folks share related to EDS, many of them help me mm-hmm. and it's probably not actually the right diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible that maybe my chronic PTSD and muscle tension just for so many years has made my muscles more brittle. Right. I don't, I don't know. And I chased the diagnosis for a while, but one year ago, and this will relate to the question that you actually asked. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, I, I was like, I can't, I can't continue my pace of work because I just keep getting injured. And mm-hmm. I know that when I'm a little bit stressed because stress blows me out more then I'm less, I feel my body less and listening to cues less. And then I do something that hurts my muscles. Yeah. And, um, so I had 10 muscle injuries just to give you, a, I, I strained my left peck. I sprained my spine on the chiropractor's table. Just like um, doing things that should be benign. It sounds like. I, yeah. I got a chronic hip injury doing a stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, I tore my calf on a walk. Yeah. Um, like I, every, there's no region of my body that hasn't had an injury. Mm-hmm. So um, a year ago, we made some drastic changes. My husband and I quit our jobs. We sold our stuff in San Francisco and we moved to Bali. Okay. And it's a one way ticket. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, I am going to take a break from the types of medical interventions that I've been seeking. Not that I'm throwing any of that away or wouldn't seek them again, but I'm going to take a break for now. Mm -hmm. And instead, I'm just going to tune in. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go far, far away. I'm going to have zero responsibilities outside of taking care of myself. Right. Um, And I'm going to meditate for an hour or two a day. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to going to try some things on my own. Mm-hmm. And so the first part of the trip, I started really trying to work on my posture and some of my core muscles and some of these things that are so commonly cited as having a big impact on your muscle function, your, your musculature functioning. Okay. Way it's okay. Yeah. But even just trying to sit up straight um, hurt. And I had to be honest that I was getting a little achievement oriented with it. And like, I went to Bali and I need this story and I need these photos and I need this certain success to look a certain way. Yeah. I had to back off and be like, I don't, I don't think it's going to look this way. So then I stopped and all I did was restrict my mobility, which no doctor has ever recommended. And maybe no doctor or like PT ever would recommend. They're always saying we want you to have more mobility, more mobility. But I said, I'm doesn't hurt. And as soon as it starts hurting, I'm going to, I'm going to stop doing that move. So for instance, I stopped getting up and down off the ground. Um, I stopped trying, I, I most, I don't bend a lot because of my hip and I started really honoring that and just being like, if something's on the ground, I'm not going to pick it up. Um, I stopped, what, I, I stopped climbing stairs, mm-hmm. um, cause that really flares up one of the injuries I've had. Um, and so I made these changes to the motions I was willing to make because I had so much time and space, which it's worth noting is a huge blessing and a huge privilege to be able to focus completely for this for four months. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to kind of prioritize the mental overhead of essentially memorizing the things that I 
I can do because the feedback in my body isn't quick enough in the moment always. I, I would have to commit these things to memory and kind of redesign how I how I move basically. Mm-hmm. And since I did that, I've been major injury free for the last year. Wow. And so that's a huge change for, yeah, just rest- oh. I'd, I'd like could work myself up into being frustrated. Just imagine the conversations that you would have with people about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who are like, what do you mean? Just do it. Just work around it. You're like, no, no, but it's working. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, I don't try to explain this part of my health very often. Yeah. Um, it feels great to do it in the context of like, promoting information about chronic illness, but this paradigm, you are you hit the nail on the head. Like this paradigm is not common sense to most people. And there's such a tendency for people to ask prime questions or try to solve your problem that I don't I do not I'm not open to just talking about, about this with whoever yeah. really at all. It's, I don't climb stairs. I'm disabled, I don't climb stairs. Yeah. It's not working. Okay. And so so that was a year ago that you quit and that you started doing it. Okay. And so you've been able to spend, and that's, that is a huge change to go. I haven't hurt myself basically <laughs> in so long from paying attention. And have you noticed other changes or what, what else has kind of evolved as you've been focusing like this? So in Bali, I really was alongside figuring out the specific mobility and injury side of things, I really got to even more so without the constraints of a nine to five job. And so one thing I learned is that I need maybe eight eight hours is the recommended sleep for most folks. I need between nine and 10. Mm -hmm. Like for me to feel how perhaps someone else feels with eight hours, I need closer to 10. Mm-hmm. And if when I get eight hours, I'm really sleepy. And Lord help me if I get less than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and part of that, I also have found like setting an alarm doesn't really work for me. Like I need to just sleep for as long as my body can sleep. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty counterculture. Like that's not, Yeah. even that isn't something I talk about. <laughs> But I don't make morning commitments. 11 a.m. is the earliest I do, except in very rare occasional, you know, once a month maximum scenarios. But I don't set an alarm. I'm with it. And then when I wake up in the morning, I eat breakfast, I make some tea, I do some coloring, I do some journaling. Uh, sometimes I do some reading of certain types of books and then basically when I feel ready I will meditate and shower and not well I meditate and not until after I've meditated do I take my phone off of airplane mode and even consider interfacing with the rest of the world and that is really important for my mood and for my stress levels to be able to baseline for myself Um, where no one else's agenda or emotions or anything else is involved. Because if I get involved in anything um, that will stir me up emotionally first thing in the morning, that can set off the entire course of my day. And then I'm not able to take care of my body and then I could get injured. Yeah. Yeah. And that's your priorities, priorities flowchart. Yeah. The, 
the appointment thing and what you were just saying about mornings, that super resonates with me right now. It's something that I'm trying to navigate, kind of going, okay, well, what kinds of things do I want to do? And I used to work as an editor. And as an editor, I had daily deadlines. I was pu- like publishing every day. And now I'm just like, mm, usually, I mean, it's almost certain that I'll have definitely one good day a week and lately more, but I don't know which days won't work. So I can't, it is no longer a good idea for me to take on anything where someone is going to expect something on a different day and or on a specific day, sorry. And it's so like the way that this kind of goes with the rest of the world and with work is like, all right, well, what does it look like to say I am smart? I am a good worker when, and I mean, there's lots to unpack, like not valuing yourself based on your output. But if you want to, if you want to be doing something and participating and you're like, okay, but I need to find a way to participate that people aren't expecting things at specific times and everything is built around that right now. And it's bonkers because it doesn't work for a lot of people and more and more people. Or I guess I'm meeting more and more people as I'm seeking them out. And I'm sure you are too. Yeah. Routines. So then do you do you have an inkling or have you started to think about where you are going or what things will be, what your next looks like? I mean, it might look basically like this, but are there things that you want to incorporate that you haven't, you know, that are in process? I think the way I think about it is kind of like when I was in Bali, I learned how to, I relearned how to live. So these very basic components of sleeping and eating and waking up and moving my body. Like I had to go back to the drawing board in my 30s at relearning how to do all those things in a way that honored my mind and body. Mm -hmm. And to build on what you were just saying, I feel like now I'm trying to figure out what that looks like from a professional perspective and it's very much in process um even at this moment I'm 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 volunteering um working on tech disability projects there's another community at this moment in time I've taken on more than I can and none of it's super long term and I'm going to be able to get that worked out in a couple of weeks but it's 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 a struggle like I keep wanting to fall back on what I think of as my main skill set that I've been building the last 10 years, which involves people management and basically mobilizing people around projects. Mm -hmm. I know how to do that. And when I see an opportunity to do that that's aligned with my personal mission, I'm like, oh, I should just pitch in and do that. And then as soon as I get halfway in, I'm like, oh, wait, (laughs) this type of work drains me. And it's rewarded by the world. And and sometimes I don't know if I could ever make money without using that, but I I have to get rid of that thinking because it doesn't work for my mind. Yeah. It doesn't work for my body, and it stresses me out. And when I'm stressed, I can't do anything really. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm experimenting, and I I wouldn't be surprised if more of a kind of a, a quote unquote maker schedule is what ends up being better aligned and trying to focus on writing and reading and this deep work that mm-hmm. is so fulfilling, but also my body, my, something in me, when I get on it, it's like, no, you should be doing something. You should call someone. You should sign up for something. And I haven't really gotten to a point where I'm making a lot of traction in that new type of direction. Yeah. And I don't know either, which is why I like to ask people because I don't, I don't, I think this is like one of the biggest things is that there's so many people so many people who are in this kind of in-between where you're like, I have skills and I want to contribute and I want to have community. 
And I want to do it in a way that isn't counter to my well-being. And I don't know who knows what that looks like yet, but I'm sure we're all kind of finding pieces as we go. Yes. Good question. So you're back in the States. Have you been back for very long? We got back in late January okay. and decided to move to Denver. Um, it's a so we've pace. been in Colorado. It's a different pace. Um, the professional pressures are different. I'm getting to know people in all sorts of different industries versus I was really kind of in a, a, a mono industry in San Francisco with tech where yeah. everyone I interfaced did the same type of work. And so it's been pretty refreshing for me to pull myself out of that hyper competitive environment and be in a place a little more focused on like well-being and, and family and turning work off after work mm -hmm. yeah and getting outdoors when that's good I just moved to like rural Massachusetts in the spring mm -hmm. and it's the pace is so nice compared to I was in San Francisco for a bit and I lived in Toronto before that which I loved I love Toronto but I'm like it doesn't it doesn't work anymore it can't cities yeah. Um, okay. Is there anything else about first about your health or your story or reflections or stuff that's come up that, that you want to talk about or share from kind of thinking through it? I mean, I think at this point, um, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself as I was in deep recovery to simultaneously be sharing my story and giving back and fighting the stigma. And I ended up realizing as difficult it was to ever get that out of my head, just that trying to do those two things simultaneously is it maybe isn't the best idea for myself. Mm -hmm. um, but now that I'm in a more stable place and I'm, I, I, it's not, of course, recovery is ongoing and I still live my, my lifestyle, but it's not consuming as much as me as it used to. Mm -hmm. um, I'm focused on disability advocacy mm -hmm. um, and so what that's looking like, kind of the the main concepts that I feel are not yet shared are one around the nomenclature of disability mm -hmm. and even using the word disabled or, or just person with disabilities, um, personally overcoming the stigma around that and understanding how much that special magic word, I call it, unlocks in the world. Um, when I go to the airport, I can say, hey, I'm disabled. Hey, here's what I need. And I can get it. Yeah. I can go to my employer and say, hey, I'm disabled. I need this accommodation. And I can get it. And for all of the unfortunate stigma that surrounds the nomenclature, for those of us that need it, everyone gets to choose how they identify personally. But for those of us that need accommodations, if we can use that magic word and get comfortable with that, so much can become clear and to make certain activities possible. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk a bit about the Tech Disability Project? So, sure. Because I will put this up in early October so that it also overlaps with October. Fantastic. Thanks. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, since returning from Bali and starting to think about kind of this next chapter of my professional life, I've been focused on diversity and inclusion um, in tech, for better or for worse. Maybe maybe at some point I'll fully escape the grasp of tech, but for now it's just it's what you I know. have this, <laughs> this relevant experience. It's an exciting, growing industry, and it needs diversity and inclusion with, within every industry, but tech in particular is really important to me. 
Um, so as I've been learning about all of the fantastic work that so many people are doing in the DNI space, um, communities, funds, initiatives, nonprofits, for-profits, there's so much activity around so many different types of identity groups except disability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't help but notice that every now and then disability is named, but there is there there's no meetup group. There's no fund making sure that we have disabled founders that are succeeding. There's no initiative to make sure that workplaces, tech workplaces understand that folks with disabilities need accommodations. Like there are consultants and you know that the ADA exists. Um, which are fantastic, again, not to discount any of that work, but compared to so many other identity groups in tech specifically that have so much more activity and momentum around them, mm-hmm. um, the disability community is, isn't one of them. Right. And so it seems like an opportunity to me. At Adobe, where I last was, my last company was acquired by Adobe, and there was an employee resource group in name only at the time when I joined in 2016. It was called Access Adobe, which I thought was great. Even in name only actually helps because I landed this news company and I saw this on the website and I was like, okay, phew, I'm okay. Like they want me. Like mm-hmm. it's everything's gonna be okay. But as soon as I started digging into is there a meeting or an email list, there wasn't yet. And there was an opportunity to stand up and raise my hand in my workplace and be like, hey, I'm gonna help lead this. Mm-hmm. Um, which was scary to disclose publicly and said at that career fair, not career fair, community fair in front of all of my coworkers. But I did it and there were no negative repercussions, only positive impacts. And so that was kind of my first foray into the disability community in tech. And so this year as I realized that there was nothing above that, there's nothing necessarily beyond these employee resource groups at a couple of large companies, um, I started thinking about, okay, maybe we can form a group. Maybe it's called disabled in tech, like maybe, maybe there's kind of like how there's lesbians in tech, maybe there's a group for us. Um, but I started bumping up against this nomenclature problem of feeling like, well, actually, if we use the word disability, I, I don't know how many people are going to opt in. I don't know if people are going to feel comfortable opting in. Um, so that's when the idea kind of came to start with more of a content-first campaign. Um, rather than a community for a strategy. Okay, let's just create a platform. Let's create a space for folks to come forward anonymously or not and completely with only who's interested mm-hmm. to come forward and share their story of injury, illness, or disability related to their career path or their workplace. Mm-hmm. And I was not sure what would happen, but kind of put some feelers out there in among some disability advocates I knew in this space, and people started signing up and sharing and saying they wanted to participate. And we are now, we have over 30 participants. Every day in the month of October, we're going to be releasing at least one piece of content where someone is sharing their personal experience. Um, and that's it. There's no other agenda beyond this. We, we aren't at the point yet where folks have come together with mm-hmm. a particular platform. Maybe, maybe that will happen. That would be cool. But for now, we're just trying to open up the conversation and increase people's comfort levels discussing and disclosing disability in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm really looking forward to seeing everything that people write. Because I also think a nomenclature thing, just relating to what you've been saying, but to kind of talk about it differently, is also that there's kind of what we learn that disability is maybe when we're little and this is a representation problem 
and and it's a signage problem, frankly. So we think that one mobile like disability means mobility. So there's like a lot of the time, if we think about it, we'll think about physical disabilities and specifically people who use wheelchairs. And then there's one a whole thing of a general population problem where we don't recognize that many people who use mobility devices are actually able to walk and that it's a tool but that's like a whole platform in itself but then there's this much larger thing about how all everything else that you describe so injury and chronic illness and chronic pain they are they're they are disability but calling them that feels like you're encroaching and not for any reason and I, I don't think this is just me because I, I feel like I've talked about it in different things but like because we learn this one definition we have a lot of trouble expanding it to include all of the different people who need accommodations um, and not for lack of trying on be- on the part of the disability community because I agree with you there's a ton of really awesome advocacy going on and it's still like it's a really uphill battle for making sure that that language is understood by people and so well, I think the most common misconception is that disabled means not able or less able. Mm-hmm. And even how folks say stuff like people of all abilities, it kind of makes it sound like, okay, there's this there's yeah. a spectrum. There are the people that are able and people that are medium able and the people that are less able. And actually the word disabled doesn't that that's kind of a medical interpretation. It's a medical model of understanding ableism. Mm-hmm. Whether it's malicious or not, but uh, defining ableism is just believing that people uh, of, uh, of uh, an able-bodied person is better than right. someone who's disabled. Um, and moving away from that, another model of understanding disability is that folks with disabilities simply require a particular accommodation in order to interface with the constructed environment and the constructed society. And that we made these things up with certain folks in mind and with other folks, we said, oh, we're not going to make sure that you also have access to these buildings and these programs and these lifestyles. Um, and to have a disability simply means that we have this extra hurdle to jump through of figuring out, okay, what is that accommodation? And then asking for it and making sure that we get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I fall into this in my own life. Like, there are certain things I don't do. Um and I recently got a house, and we have this yard, and there are these weeds. And I'm like, well, I can't pull the weeds because yeah. I can't get on the ground, and I can't bend. And so I, I was stuck in that model of I can't. And then I was watching a video the other day of a person in a wheelchair using this tool to garden. And it was just like, oh, like, it's not that I can't take care of my lawn. It just means that I have to go through kind of these extra steps of figuring out what it would take for me to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And of course, not everyone wants to do every single thing in the world, nor does every. So we, we choose our where we put our energy and effort. Certainly, it's um, there. Are, like skiing is not something at the top of my list that I'm going to figure out how to do. Though I bet if I was hell bent on it, that I could. Yeah. Um, so that's just another way of understanding the word disability. Mm-hmm. And until I understood that, I actually was really kind of much more comfortable identifying as a person with disabilities, that identity first language. Right. And as soon as I understood that to de- identify as disabled, which frankly is just easier to say in the moment um, and is not an insult at all, right. um, that to identify as disabled is is available to me because it doesn't have to mean that I'm any less able or capable in the world. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think just like a really quick synopsis of the first part, something that I love that I see floating around the internet that I'm going to say wrong, but there's the kind of that like a wheelchair doesn't make you just, dis- the wheelchair isn't causing your disability or lack of access. The steps are causing your lack of access. The wheelchair is a tool and that being one, of course, of many. But when people start talking like that, you realize it. You're like, right, no, this environment was constructed for one type of person and it it's surfacing these other things. And I think the way that it relates to chronic illness, it's so much harder because accommodations are so different for each individual person. And if you don't already know the model, so if you don't know what the ramp is, you can't ask for it, like what you're saying, until you know how, as a person who, you know, really doesn't benefit from waking up to an alarm, what does it look like to just sell that to an employer to say, here's the accommodation that I need. I need flex hours and I need them to work this in this way, but I don't even know all of the things. So it's a really, it'll be great to hear from people about either the limits that they've hit, even if they don't know the answer to get a better scope of the problem and the kind of workarounds and ramps that they built. I think that'll be really cool. Totally. It's like when we work together, we can help expedite this process that so many of us feel like we have to navigate completely on our own. For that beginning recovery years, I felt so alone and like there wasn't a a person in my life that I knew that I could call up and actually see counsel from because I have friends who love me and can support me emotionally, but I didn't I didn't have access to anyone who could give me concrete advice about how to manage some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it sounds like I think I'm kind of in the same boat that I wasn't I wasn't seeing things clearly for a long time and I was just living. And I think back to like my first job after school and I'm like, oh, I worked from home. I was lucky because I was able to do this, but like I worked from home so many mornings because it was so painful for me to get out of bed. But I didn't see that as like a problem. I mean, I knew that it wasn't good, but I didn't have anything. I didn't think that it was part of something bigger. Or I worked in a co-working space where I could lie down on the couch with my laptop a lot, which again was incredible. I just lucked into this. But it's not normal to need to do that so often. And so, like, I had no idea. And it's, it's incredible to me just how many people are being, I don't know, hobbling along right now, not seeing it. And so before you even have this lens of really a diagnosis or just the switch of going, oh, something is actually wrong that I can look for a name for to seeking a diagnosis, like, all of the time before that, it's like... Ah, it's awful. Which I think is beautiful the way that you even construct these conversations is to really demonstrate those chapters. And, like, I I couldn't have come close to being at a place to do disability advocacy when I was in the height of not having a clue what was going on in my body. Yeah. Um, Which it sounds funny to even say, but that was what was going through my mind at the time was somehow, I think, to make myself feel better about the fact that I was going through this I was like, well, if I could just somehow help people, and this might be like a white savior complex-ish too of just these these things that get ingrained in your mind if I always need to be helping people or a female issue, I don't know. But for yeah. me, I that distracted me from being willing and able to just take care of myself at the time and trust that I was going to get better mm-hmm. and that in time I was going to be able to participate in ways that I wanted to in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to go through it. There's a lot of things like that, I guess. Things that are really, grief is kind of the same way, although there is a lot of grief for, I think, for bodies of like, you really just have to feel it before you can talk to anybody, 
talk to anybody else about it as they go through it. Hang on. Talk anybody else through it. Be able to support people. You can't support people from the middle. Not that yeah. this necessarily ends, but it's like you have to really see an arc for yourself. I think that's definitely been my experience. And I think it sounds similar because it takes up so much bandwidth. And it still does, but a lot of this stuff turns into habit, like what you're describing about your mornings, is you have to really carefully construct it and choose it every day for a long time, and then it can become a habit, but it gets shaken out so quickly because it's not anybody else's habit. Yeah. Yeah, no, I end up realizing, first I have to discover something for myself, then I need to fold my partner into it, Mm -hmm. and then I need to fold my close friends and family into it, and then everybody else maybe if necessary mm-hmm. um, but that if I didn't understand that sequence that and I started like trying to talk to a co-worker about something that I was just figuring out for myself that I was going to end up in a conversation that was I did not want to actually be in even though <laughs> mentally it might be like oh I want to talk to someone about this I want support in it I had to learn to be a little more protective of myself and who I talk to about certain things when mm-hmm. But I think, hey, like, there's also this, there's a huge language problem around all of this. Um, And so when you're kind of starting the conversation with an acquaintance or someone who, for whatever reason, you've just been introduced to, but it comes up, is you have to take so many steps back to just have them understand what you're talking about. Because (sighs) what people think when they hear any of the words, like we just talked about disability, but when people hear pain, when people hear fatigue, when people hear like all of these words, the way that they interpret them is probably not the way that you're using them. That's definitely been my experience. I'm like, no, when I say that I'm tired, what I mean is that all of my skin is on fire and my lymph nodes are throbbing. Like, I don't mean I'm a little bit drowsy, which is what you are hearing. It's not what I'm saying. And so it's like those people who are in your kind of inner circle and who you just described, it's like, yeah, partner and kind of close friends and family is you have to work on getting them to hear that when you're talking so that you're not like, otherwise that conversation just balloons. So we have like huge language stuff that's missing to describe these kinds of symptoms, which a topic for some other time, I think is a big problem with medicine is you go to a doctor and you say you hurt and you're tired and they hear it the way that they hear it. But doctors they are doing their best and sometimes it is not helping yeah okay that's my rant at the end of your (laughs) analysis of where you're at um i don't think i have any more questions thank you so much for for sharing um i can make sure to share uh the links and stuff is there anywhere that people can go look this up i know it will be your project will be on medium yes it's on medium um, I can probably, it's medium.com slash tech dash disability dash project. Okay. Awesome. And I will figure out how to make sure that's included in my show notes, which I've done in the past, but I'm restarting for this project. So, so I'm getting it started. Um, perfect. I almost knocked over some water, but it's okay. Okay. Um, thank you so much for your time and for your patience with my early tech issues. I will go and check out this recording now, but I think it should be good. And thank you for opening up and taking the time to talk to me. I'll let you know when everything is ready to go. Perfect. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the work that you're doing to advance this message as well. I'm excited. Thank you for listening to the third episode of No End in Sight. 
I've got more great stories lined up for future episodes, so make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Tech Disability Project on Medium. Natasha is in week two, and I think I have a post coming out soon, so head over there and make sure to subscribe and clap for any and all posts that speak to you. Otherwise, if you want to commiserate with me on Twitter, you can always find me at BennisB, and if you want to share your story with me, just click my bio link there to schedule an interview. I would absolutely love to hear from you. Plus, I recently started a Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. So if you're freelancing or managing an Etsy shop or running your own Fortune 500 company, I'd love it if you joined. Last thing, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When When I'm up for it, I make simple, modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. For me, cross stitch is a perfect way to occupy my mind and my eyeballs during flares when I mostly watch long TV marathons. I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.